like I said, I, I was really blessed when Ken came and spoke at the Harvest Project. Um, he, you're a, a pastor in Bethany, uh, Bethany in Bloomington, um, and a lot of uh, a, a couple of our good friends, a couple of people in the community are a part of that church, and so it's really fun to have Ken with us. And uh, we're gonna pray for him, and and then he's gonna speak for us tonight. Um, so just join with me in praying for him, Father God. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for your spirit and your your presence just being uh, among us. And we ask that you would come and speak to our hearts through our brother here, um, that you and your word would go out authoritatively, God, that we give you uh, room in our hearts to even speak and to change and to guide and to encourage, um, to correct, God, that our hearts are open to your word tonight and let it go forth and bring, bring fruit. In, in our lives, um, we love you, and we, we just, we honor you, and we submit to you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Um, great to be with you guys tonight. Um, always good to see some familiar faces and remember your names, <laughs> and uh, some new folks, too. My name's Ken. Kraus, my wife, Laura, is home tonight with our five kids, some of whom are throwing up, which is largely why she's there. She really wanted to be here, but it always seems to happen that way. But when you have five kids, you know, the odds of somebody being sick are greater than if you have one. So um, you, some of you are like, is that my, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> um, I, uh, I love being here with you guys. I really, really do. I love what God's doing in this place, and, and I know I don't know, uh, you know, a lot of you, and I don't know many of you really well, but, um, but I'm always encouraged when I'm here, um, just even worshiping with you guys. And so um, as we were praying, I really believe the Lord um, wanted, wants to say something to you as we start. I think it ties into the message. Um, if it doesn't, I think it'll be good anyway. I, in, in God's heart for you guys, and, and not only like when I say God's heart, I don't mean just like a desire, like, oh, I hope that'll happen. But like there's a commitment in the heart of God to each one of you that you will all stand every day of your life for Jesus. Not just a desire, like clearly God wants us to, to know him. He wants us to, um, to, to persevere until the end. How many of you know what Matthew 10, 22 says? If you don't, you should totally memorize it right now. It's super easy too. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's what Matthew 10, 22 says. It's in the context of Jesus preaching. And uh, so it comes right from the, from the mouth of God himself as a man, Jesus. It says, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. So there's a persevering that's necessary for us to, uh, to, to press into, into our salvation. And, and it's God's desire that each one who, who comes into God's family through faith, by the blood of Jesus, Endure to that point. Endure to the end. Now, what's the end? It's an important question if we're having this conversation. The end of what? The end of the day? The end of the week? Till I get out of school? Till I get married? What's the end? Well, there's two possible ends when you read the context of what Jesus is talking about there. One possible end is, is the end of your earthly life at whatever point it ends. Tragically, perhaps young, hopefully not. Um, it does happen. Perhaps in old age when you're, you know, 90 sitting on a, on a porch swing with your wife of 60 years watching your flock of grandchildren run around, much like is happening here in the Anderson household. Praise God. We don't know when that end will be, but we all know we have one, right? I mean, that's going to happen at some point or another in some way or another. Or the other potential end in the context of that conversation is what? The return of Jesus. When he returns... And there's a finality to that end. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that it, Paul says that there's a mystery. Not all will sleep. So what he's, what, what's Paul saying? He said there will be a generation that actually endures to that end. They'll, they'll still be living on the earth when the fullness of, of God's plan and, and the events that he's prophesied will, will come down. And those who push through to that up until the point where Jesus splits the sky literally comes back to the earth for his bride and establishes his kingdom on the earth. That's the other potential end. So we have two potential ends. I don't know which one you will be part of. I don't know which one I will be part of. But I know that the Lord A wants and B is committed to seeing you stand until your end. 
And I and and I I, I believe this is related to the message, even though um, it's not really where I plan to come out of the gate this, this evening. But I, I want to pray for for us that we would have the confidence that God will do that in our life. I my sense is some like if if I not cornered you like in a threatening way where you just had to give me the right answer so I'd let you go. But if I cornered you and got you to a place of honesty, every one of you individually, and I asked you the question, how certain are you? And I mean certain, certain, that regardless of resistance, regardless of temptation, regardless of, of the difficulty and that is required for you to stand until that day, whatever that day is for you, whatever that end is, how absolutely certain are you that you will continue to align yourself with Jesus when it gets incredibly costly until that end? I, I want every one of us to answer that question tonight with absolute and total confidence. Yes, I will. Not out of some kind of like hyped up, oh, because I know I'm great. You're not. Like that's not going to work. You've tried that a thousand times and it's never worked. But because you're so confident in the confident in the grace of God towards you and his love towards you in the work of the, the, the Holy Spirit in your life and in the wisdom that he's giving you in your life, that the, the, the pieces are in place for that to be a reality. And so I, 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 want, I want us to be bolstered in that confidence, like, like really, really happily confident and, and, and secure in that tonight. And so I don't, you know, again, I don't, I don't know all of you and, and, and I don't even necessarily have a massive gift of prophecy per se. I, I don't even, I'm not pretending to look into your soul and kind of know what's going on. You can answer the question tonight. <laughs> but I'd like to add to the equation a new level of confidence that, God, that A, it's necessary because sometimes I know part of the enemy's scheme already in some of you is, that's not important. I said the prayer. I did my thing. I'm kind of aligned with Jesus. It doesn't really matter if I compromise. Like, honestly, have you heard some of those thoughts in your head in the last three minutes? So the first thing I want to establish is, yes, endurance is necessary, totally necessary unto salvation, that we, that we reject any demonic teaching that we can just kind of kind of be aligned with Jesus but that we would wholeheartedly identify with him, even into, into his death, onto his resurrection that we'll, also, that we'll share with him. So A, that perseverance is necessary, and B, that, um, that you're just so joyfully confident that God will indeed bring you to that place where you'll stand before him at the end. Amen? If you want to just be strengthened in that tonight, I just want to ask you to stand. I just want to pray for you in that. Father, I, uh, I just thank you for your children, your sons and daughters that you've bought with the blood of your son. God, I thank you that the, the, the work of the cross is totally sufficient for each of our, uh, for each of our journeys, Lord, to, to continue with you, Lord, to persevere right until that end. Father, I pray to, to any uh, weak, pray into any um, uh, wavering, Lord, in hearts, God, where there's not total confidence that you'll see them through to that day, God, that you would strengthen them by your grace this evening. I am asking for that, God, for a new measure of that confidence, God, and, and a rightly grounded confidence, not in their own good works, not in their own abilities, not in their own strength. Don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man in his strength, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows the Lord. We want to know you tonight. God, I ask for revelation. Father, I pray that you would reveal your son Jesus to us by your Holy Spirit tonight. I ask for revelation, God. That we would really know you, God. That our boast would be so entirely rooted in the cross. Not of any works of our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's awesome. You guys can, can sit. Um, it's awesome. I love, I love the faith and the desire and the humility 
of, of you guys responding that way. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a broken home. Um, my parents divorced when I was five. And, uh, you know, when you're a young person, they say it takes often 20 years for people to, to recover from trauma. And, uh, and I found that to definitely be true in my life. I know my, I have an older brother. He's two years older than me. And we're, you know, men. We had wives and children and came crying on the phone talking about pain from our childhood. And, uh, and so that was the context I grew up in. And I don't, don't think I really grasped the weight of that until I had a five-year-old of my own. And I thought, what would happen if his world fell apart the way mine did at that time? And it's just heart-wrenching. It just tears you apart. Now I've I've got lots of five-plus-year-olds, well, a few. I've got uh, a, almost a, they're going to be almost 10, 8, 6, 4, and 2. That, no, not 2, 1 this year. My, my little guy's going to turn 1 here next week. Um, so I've kind of seen them go through that, and I just think, how, how did that, you know, that was crazy. So that was the, the situation I grew up in. We grew up going to church, um, this little church in this little town in northern Canada, um, Kind of the, the Canadian version of a, you know, Appalachian hillbilly, kind of country bumpkin sort of guy. Uh, really uh, isolated, uh, awkward, uh, socially dysfunctional because I didn't have much social anything. Uh, school was the highlight of my social life my whole life. I'm not kidding you. It was like the only place that I saw people that weren't related to me or looked weird and worked for my dad. Um, I'm getting, I am, I mean, these, these guys were crazy looking like, um, out of, out, out of the backwoods. And, um, and so we went to this church, but it, if they preached the gospel, they were speaking a different language. Cause I didn't get it. I, I don't know what happened in these meetings besides me just trying to catch another nap. Um, you know, I learned really well. I, I, I mastered the craft of falling asleep in church as a teenager. How many of you grew up in churches like that? Like, the worst was, because I'm a heavy sleeper, um, the head bob. I don't know if you've ever done this. I'm sure you have in a class of some sort, but you're trying so hard, not because you care about what the guy's saying, but because you know you're going to be in trouble if you get caught sleeping. So you're trying so hard to keep your eyes open. You're doing this, and, but that hurts after a while, and slap yourself, pinch yourself, on and on and on. But then the head goes, and that's what wakes me up. I was all... When, you know, my muscles relax and then my heavy head kind of falls and I'm like, startles me and you wake back up and then everybody's like, <laughs> look at him, including your parents and that never goes well. But what I learned is that if you can look really pious and prayerful, if you prop your knees to your elbows and rest your head in it, and it really looks prayerful. And you can go for a long period of time without anybody knowing after a while, they're like, that boy ain't praying. I know he ain't. I've never seen that boy pray. <laughs> But hey, it worked for a little while. So that was, that was my experience growing up in church. And uh, again, if there was any truth from the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit being communicated in that building, it went way over my head. I didn't get it. And so I, I didn't know the Lord, but, you know, my family went to church, and that was about the limit of our spiritual experience together. It wasn't like, you know, my parents were leading Bible studies with me or, we, you know, we didn't pray together or anything like that. You just go to church. But I had a Bible, and I remember even as a young, just a boy, you know, at times just reading this picture Bible and, and, and looking back, I can see, wow, I think the Holy Spirit was working in my life and giving me a, a love for the Word. So I had some exposure, but definitely uh, didn't know the Lord, didn't, wasn't converted as I became a teenager with some of the pain and the hurt that I had in my life, became pretty rebellious. I loved sin and, uh, by God's grace, he plucked me in this little farm isolated in the middle of nowhere with a dysfunctional family. Uh, and so as a result of that, I had limited opportunity to sin in all of the ways that I would have liked to. Um, but to whatever degree I was able, I did. And, uh, and I knew enough about God to feel bad about it. And so I was kind of a sad, miserable sinner, uh, not a happy, oblivious one. And so I just lots of guilt and shame and on and on and on. And, um, and then when I was 16, my brother, just a, an incredible guy, I got to tell his story just for a second. He was at eight years old when my parents divorced. I was five, he was eight. Um, my dad sent us to a summer camp thinking that would be a good idea for us and probably because he and my mom had a lot of stuff to work out. So a week without us would be a great idea. And, and I guess they preached the gospel there because my brother heard it. Again, maybe I'm the idiot and maybe they were saying it all along and I was just missing it, but he got it. And so my, my brother, with no uh, influence, you know, in, in, a, in a godly sense around him, 
meets God at eight years old outside a campfire, this little camp, and I believe got filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think he knew that at that time. And from that day on, eight years old, the, the man has never not loved Jesus with all of his heart. Uh, never had a pastor, never had anybody disciple him. By the time we were in high school, I kid you not, we lived in kind of this dungeony basement of our, uh, of our farmhouse, him and I, that was our room. And, and Ben had this carpet and he would lay and pray and read for hours a day, just by himself, just, just a, like a teenage guy. I, yeah, you're like, is that human? And um, nobody ever told him to. No, he never heard a sermon that, you know, made any sense or had any relevance. It wasn't, we didn't grow up in a relevant environment in terms of our religion, but the Holy Spirit was moving on him. And so I would walk into my room every night, you know, doing whatever I had just done. And I'd see this guy praying. It just made me angry. And so I'd try to provoke him and kick him and stuff like that. And then, but he would respond with, you know, godly responses. And it just angered me until finally the Holy Spirit used that in, in leading to my conversion. At 16 years old, my brother had already organized a youth group of sorts at our church. It's the first time there was ever a youth group there. 15-year-old guy who loved Jesus was like, hey, we need, we need a youth ministry. Never even heard of youth ministry before. I'd never been to a youth group in my life. He decides that's what we're going to do. So we have this youth group. And then he gets a postcard in the mail saying, like, four hours away at the only, like, city with any population where I grew up. Um, this postcard comes in the mail, says, hey, there's going to be this youth conference. And so Ben, my brother, yes, Ben and Ken, it was a terrible idea on the part of my parents to name us that. Um, I think when they chose it, it was Kenneth and Benjamin. And so they're like, yay, that's great. But Ken and Ben, that was my whole life. And... Um, and so Ben gets this postcard in the mail saying there's this youth conference. So he's like, he, he convinces this adult in our church who had a van and he had a cell phone, which was super cool. It was like this big. Um, it was before the days of cell phones, but Dave was the man because he had a cell phone and a big van. He convinced this guy. Yeah, I think it was a satellite phone. He convinces this guy to take us four hours to this conference. He's 15 years old. He calls churches all around that area, just cold calling them to find out, find one that would let us sleep on their floor. Finally does. And, um, and so for years to come, because of the influence of this 15-year-old brother of mine, uh, we would bring busloads of kids from our church three years later and, and from our community and school down to this conference. They'd hear the gospel. Kids would get saved. Uh, because one guy just decided, hey, that's what we're going to do, and I, we don't have a youth group, we don't have a youth pastor, we don't have a youth ministry, but we're going to organize something, and I'm going to make phone calls until we get there. And he gets there, and his little brother gets saved as a result of it. It took me three years. We went for three years in a row, and finally, um, for all the wrong reasons, I showed up again, uh, largely a gal I thought was cute, and vice versa, she thought I was. Uh, but, you know, that was all the motivation I needed to get out of the, off the farm for a few days. It was the only weekend every year that my dad would actually let us do anything besides work. I'm not kidding. Like, that's all we did. We just worked all the time. And we accepted that. That's how dysfunctional we were. We didn't even fight back. We're like, we didn't even think twice about it. That's how backwoods hillbilly we were. Um, but my dad, for whatever reason, would let my brother and I go away to this conference every, every fall for a couple days. And it was the third year I was 17, I get saved. Like, like really saved, not like, oh, I love Jesus, yes I do. Um, how about you? Um, like, like, I really got saved. Like, I had a lot of sin in my life that I loved and that I was protecting and, and holding on to. And I said, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that anymore. I repent. I, I've resisted the notion that Jesus is actually my authority, and now I'm accepting that, and I'm, instead of rebelling against that authority, I'm submitting to that authority, and I'm liking it, and it's awesome, and so I got filled with the Holy Spirit, got saved, and, uh, and, and that was obviously a significant turning point in my life. 17 years old, still kind of the same environment that I described to you for another year or two until I finished high school, and then by God's grace, he plucked me out of that place, and I've never gone back. Um, <laughs> seriously, it's awesome. Um, I'm very, very glad. Um, and so, um, the, the, the part of the story that I felt was relevant just as I was praying is what happened was a season came in my life a couple of years later that I actually, I, I, okay, so maybe every now and then a little bit of prophecy comes out. Maybe this is it. I don't know. You tell me a year from now, because that's what it's going to take to test it. What happened was there came a season where because I got disoriented and way out of my normal environment that I was comfortable in, and some of you have gone through that. Maybe you moved at a, you know, a critical point in your life or you just took a massive step of faith and everything around you changed, but you knew God was in it. So I, I moved like 2,000 miles away and um, 
I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. I was socially awkward. I smelled bad because I'd spent 15 years in a barn. And, uh, and none of that played in well to me integrating into, you know, normal people's lives. And so I spent about nine wretchedly lonely months um, just trying to figure out myself and life and anything. And you know what? During that season, God put in me just a passion and a hunger for the Word of God. And, um, and I, like, by the, you're like, what does that look like? It means I read it a lot, um, just to make it really simple. And not because anybody was telling me to, but frankly, because I didn't have anything else to do. I had very little in terms of opportunity to be distracted with a lot of other things. And again, that was all the design of God. And for a couple years, uh, more than any other time in my life, and perhaps to my shame, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I would even possibly uh, match that level of, of, of time investment into the word now as I did then. But maybe it was, you know, it was just the, the Lord, but the Lord's timing and his season and his, his plan. But there was a couple years where, where this was all I did was just, I, I loved the word of God. I do love the word of God still, but, but I just look back at that season as a time that laid a foundation for me in terms of getting grounded and solidified and familiar, not only with God's word, not as a, as a stale book and, and history, but through his word, got familiar with God. How many of you want to be familiar with God? Like, I, that, that sounds a little edgy to some people. You can't, he's God, he's too out there, he's too, no, he's not. He, he became a man for crying out loud. Why would he have become a man if he didn't want to be familiar with us? In fact, it says in Isaiah that he was a man familiar with our sufferings. He came to familiarize himself with us. How much more then is it not obvious that, um, that he wants us to be familiar with him? And there was this, these couple years, thank you so much, Clifton, um, where just getting familiar with God was all I did. And, and, and that ties into... What I shared with you earlier and what I prayed for you in is that I really believe for you to endure the way that we prayed you would endure, you need to be familiar with God. I think you just really, 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 really need to know him. And I, I'm, I'm convinced that the only way that you're going to know him at that level is to get saturated in his words. His words are life to us. Um, I love the idea of saturation. Um, my dad... Kraus is our last name. It's very German. My grandparents grew up in the Ukraine. They're German Mennonites. They lived off the land. They're like hardcore, like I'll find a way and survive type of guys. And so uh, made all their own food. My grandparents to this day, they're still alive. They're 95 and 86, my Oma and Opa. They live in their own home on 10 acres by themselves. They bring the wood in in the Canadian winter. After No, I'm not kidding. Um, this is no word of a lie. My Oma is like a 90-pound frail woman, and my Opa used to be, you know, a strapping man about my stature. And uh, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. And uh, obviously, he's getting a little hunched over in his 90s. But when they have to bring the wood in from the shed, Opa lost the strength to push the wheelbarrow in the later years of his life. So I, I'm not kidding. I've pulled up into the driveway of Oma and Opa's house before, and I've seen a rope tied around Oma's waist, tied to the wheelbarrow, while she's hauling and he's pushing, and together they bring the... I'm not kidding. That's how they live. They still do it. It's awesome. They're, they're amazing people. Survivors to the core. What's that? Yeah, yeah. No, my Opa survived the World War II. He was a Soviet tank driver. He was the only one in his platoon that survived. It's an incredible story, but just amazing examples and how God puts people in there. But um, why am I telling this story? I got distracted. I love talking about them. I was telling you about them. Why was I telling you about them? There was a reason. I got so excited. Saturation. Oh, yeah, I hear Kraus. Heritage. Thank you. They made some killer good food. One thing they made was pickles, and my family is proud of their pickles. They, they are pickles like nothing you've ever eaten before. But pickles go through a process of saturation, because when you start, what do you start with? It's a cucumber, and cucumber is like the blandest piece of food God ever made, isn't it? Nobody gets excited about a cucumber. I mean, we ha Nobody in their right mind gets excited about it. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. 
apart from some very strange folks out there. Cucumbers are like, meh, it's a cucumber. I'll eat it because I know it's good for me if I can put a little salt on it or dress it up with something else. But, but when you eat a pickle that my Oma and Opa made, or my dad now, the recipe's kind of been, I mean, it, it'll like bite your face. It's awesome. It's like the, oh, it just blows your mind. It's so good. And, and what happened? Well, it kind of got saturated for a long time in a certain brine, thank you. And, and it changed, right? Here's, here's, here's my, my, my uh, encouragement to you this, this evening. I, I really believe for you to grasp the essence of what I actually came to share, you're going to need to spend the next years of your life saturated in the Word of God. I don't think it'll sink in otherwise. I hope tonight provokes you to take that step. And so really, let's measure the value of tonight like three years from now. Is that fair? I'm not going to measure the value of tonight based on how excited you are when you walk out the door or how much you think, man, that was a great word. I don't care. Did it provoke you to saturate yourself, to, to just get into God in a way that, that changes you so that in the days to come, you persevere? That's how we're going to evaluate it. Is that fair? Okay. Grab your Bible, 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Timothy 6, um, starting in verse 4. Um, we're going to read a, a decent amount of Scripture, and I know that's, that's uh, <laughs> it can be unusual. I don't think it's unusual around here, but I know in some places it's like, wow, you're going to read more than three verses? <laughs> yep. Uh, because we need to be saturated in this stuff, right? Like this... I actually would love to do a survey. I was thinking about this on the way over here. Would you guys give me 30 seconds of honesty? There's no shame in this. I just really want to know. No shame to me, no shame to one another. I would love to know how you would evaluate your biblical literacy. Yeah, like really, like scale of one to ten. Like how many, of you, and by biblical literacy, I mean, if I was to open up the Bible to any page, just flip through it and stop and read a chapter, would you know what I'm talking about? I, I have a friend who just decided, he's just a dear friend of mine, we, we minister together. He said to me years ago, and he was just kind of a flippant Bible college student, just kind of do the bare minimum requirement, uh, get through, and, and God just got a hold of his heart at a certain point in his life years ago, and he said to me, Ken, I want to be able to open my Bible at any time, at any point, and I want you to be able to read one sentence to me, I don't want to know exactly what's going on at that time, I want to be able to talk about all of it. And I was like, oh, yes, Zechariah 4. Duh! I just want to nail it. Like, I, I want to know. And, and he does. Dave, some of you guys know Dave Horseman. He leads worship at Bethany Church, uh, where, I, where I pastor. Dave is just voraciously hungry all the time for the Word of God. Just, he saturates himself in it. And I, don't, I, I think if you read any paragraph of the Bible to Dave at any time, Dave could tell you what's going on right then. I really, really do. And you might think, well, is it just an academic exercise? It's not an academic exercise because Dave's, Dave knows God through God's word. He's familiar with God. Why? Because he talks to him all the time and he hears his words all the time. And he gets it. He gets the story of it. It makes sense to him because there's a place to put some of the difficult things because there's a framework built. And you can't build a framework by reading uh, fridge magnets that have cute verses on them. But isn't that, I mean, isn't that kind of what our Western Christianity looks like? I got a couple cute flowery uh, verse magnets. I know there's good plans for me. Is that going to help you persevere through tribulation? Maybe. Probably not, though. It's not about cute fridge magnets that kind of, kind of lift your spirits in the moment when everything's crumbling around you. It's about putting the whole thing in context. There's a story going on. You're part of the story. The story's not about you, but you're in the story. You're an important part of the story. How, what, how do I make sense of anything? You know how you do? You get familiar with the real story, the big story, what's going on through the word, saturated, right? So I, I really believe this. My, my objective tonight more than anything is just to provoke you. I just want to, like, <clears throat> flip a little switch in you that just says, I'm going for it. Not, to, not just tomorrow morning. <laughs> not just for a week. Forever. I want to know God. 
I want to know his word. I want to know the story. I'm hungry for that. I want to put my life in perspective, in the right perspective in the, of, the, of the, whole, the story that's going on. Okay, let's read 1 Timothy 6, 4 through 19. Do a little commentary as we go through. Paul's writing to Timothy. How many of you know who Timothy is? Biblical literacy. Okay, four people know their Bibles at least. Uh, okay, Timothy. Who's Timothy? Paul's disciple. He's a disciple of Paul. He's a young man. What's his job? He's a pastor. Where is he pastoring? Ephesus. Good. We got some stuff going on. This is great, guys. It's important to know. It's really important to know. It's not just, just academics. It helps understand, helps you understand what's going on. So Paul is the, the, the spiritual father of Timothy. He, he, um, he was pretty significant, I think, in, in Timothy's conversion, certainly in his discipleship, and, and certainly in, in seeing him released into the ministry that he's performing in Ephesus as a, as a, as a, a leader in that church. And, um, and he loves Timothy. He loves Timothy so much, and Paul loves the church that Timothy is leading. And so there's kind of the two-dimensional piece of any epistle like this because, or three-dimensional, you have the guy who's writing it, Paul, so hopefully we have some familiarity with Paul. Secondly, who's he writing it to? He's writing it to Timothy. Who's Timothy? What's Timothy's job? He's shepherding all of these people, the church of Ephesus. And so there's kind of these three pieces here, and you'll see that as we read through this. He says, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. If you're wondering what those things are, read the first five chapters of 1 Timothy, because he's really summarizing it here in chapter 6. But we don't have time to read the whole book. (laughs) If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and of godly teaching, they're conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Let's just pause right there just for a moment, just because we're going to deal with this passage as a whole and then pull a, a little bit from it, even though we could pull a lot more from it if we had more time. Paul summarize, you know, Paul writes in these first five chapters a bunch of stuff, and he says, these are non-negotiables, Timothy. You insist on these things. Insist. It's kind of a strong word. You don't fudge on these things, Timothy. When you teach, I know it's hard, and I know people are not going to like it all the time, but you teach these things. These things are right. These things are sound. These things are certain. These things will help you persevere till the end. These things will help other people, the people you're serving in Ephesus, persevere until the end. These, pe- these things that I taught you, Timothy, they're going to keep people on track. All the other stuff that other people of corrupt mind like to do, it just ends up in a bunch of quarreling. <laughs> Malice, strife, envy, on and on. And, and, you know, some people just love to fight about words, right? You've met them. Some of you are like, he's talking about that guy. Maybe I am. I don't know. Stop if you are that guy. It's totally unhealthy and unproductive. Quarreling about words. It's not about words. It's about sound instruction, and it's very clear. If you just get familiar with it, it's not all that mysterious or difficult to attain. You just stick with this, Timothy. This is a hard, this is like, this is fatherly. Like not in a, it's not motherly. It's not like, hmm. This is like, mm, you got that boy? Like, sound, you stick with this. None of that nonsense. That all goes crazy places. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions. You know, when people talk all the time, then they get suspicion. Everything's a conspiracy then. <laughs> so the, the, the two are kind of in the same camp. Always friction among these people of corrupt mind. They've been robbed of the truth. And then listen to how he summarizes this group of people who already we see are in a bad light. What, is, what do they do? They teach one thing that kind of puts it all together. Did you catch what it was? They think that godliness is a means to financial gain. There's a relationship between people who teach that godliness is a means to financial gain and people who are totally corrupt of mind and robbed of the truth and sit around quarreling and arguing about all kinds of frivolous stuff. They're the same camp. And, And it's worth, just for the sake of plowing through the rest of this passage, just stating, uh, how, uh, intensely different that is than what we hear so often. There's a spectrum of teaching on this. The far 
gross end of the spectrum would be God wants you to be rich. Why does he want you to be rich? Well, because then God will look great because rich people look great. That'll make people want God because they want riches. And if you can combine the carnal desires of man with, you know, looking good to God and being a great witness, then, hey, everybody wins. God gets praise. You get what you want. Have you heard anything like that before? Largely. And so there's, but, but then there's, there's kind of a, a prosperity light teaching that, that just is, you know, it, it's not going to say, say so aggressively. It's just going to say, hey, you know what? If you just do things God's way, that's the way that you prosper, right? It's prosperity light. And what, how, how are the people who teach that characterized? Robbed of the truth and of corrupt mind. So you should have your, your alarm up when you start hearing teaching that tells you, hey, godliness, boy, that's a great strategy to get the things you want. See, because the end game is still the things you want, isn't it? I mean, who doesn't want riches? How many people do you know that sit around and say, how can I be more poor? How can I extrapolate myself of all? How can I rid myself of all this wealth around me? Be untouched by it. How many national governments are sitting around how, figuring out how to increase their jobless rate? Oh, unemployment is just way too low this year. We really need to take care of that. We need, we need more poverty around here. Nobody, nobody does that. Why? Because it's totally anti-self-promotion and, and self-protection. It's, it's, it's everything that we're not. People sit around constantly figuring out how they can gain financially. How they can secure themselves from hardship. How they can be sure of the future. On and on and on and on and on. And, and so the, 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 the danger... For, for us, as we hear teaching in a prosperous country, in case you're not aware that you live in that, in one, you do, in a prosperous country is, oh, yeah, well, we love our money, uh, and we, and we want to love God, so why don't we do things God's way, and then that'll get us the money that we were looking for in the first place. And so God becomes a means to our end of wanting to prosper. And Paul says the people who teach this are robbed of the truth. They're of corrupt mind. And we'll understand why more clearly as we keep going through it. Highlight the next sentence. This is where we're going to camp out later once we get through the passage. But godliness with contentment is great gain. He resolves the tension there. And we'll get back to it. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. What should you be content with, materially speaking, based on what we just read? What's the baseline? Both basic needs. Food and clothing is what he mentions here. I always say, hey, we live in Minnesota, so a little heat inside four walls would go a long ways, as we can all attest to on a day where it's 15 below zero outside. So I, I, I think it's fair to say, hey, a roof over your head could qualify. They were living in Jerusalem. It doesn't quite get 15 below in Jerusalem. Um, and so basic needs. Hey, you know what? If your basic needs are met, I'm good. I, d I don't need anything else. That should be the posture of every Christian. I, I just want to say that super clearly. It should be the heart posture of every Christian. Hey, I ate today. Give us this day our daily bread is what Jesus taught us to pray. Why would he tell us to pray that if we had, you know, 10 years of bread stored up? You ever, you ever wonder? <laughs> How, what are you going to do for tomorrow? I don't know, but I got today taken care of. I ate. I'm good. I'm content. I don't need more than that. That should be, that should be our, our heart posture. Brought nothing into the world. Take nothing out of it. Got food and clothing. Roof over our head. I'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich, highlight these words. Those who want to get rich, those who are rich, those who want to get rich, there's a difference. Most of you, probably not rich, right? I mean, maybe some of you came from really wealthy homes and you have access to riches. I don't know your situation. But you personally, likely, the vast majority of you would not be rich. So you would think, hey, well, if we're talking just to rich people, then this is irrelevant. We can just skip on. It's not what it said. It said those who want to be rich. Those who want to get rich. Anybody want to get rich? No, seriously. Do you want to get rich? 
You need to repent of that. You really do. Those who want to get rich fall into, and, and you need to fight the urge for that as if your faith depends on it. And you'll see that it does. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Do you see very many exceptions to that statement, in that statement? Is it fairly final, conclusive, universal? Is it? That's pretty plain. If you have a desire in your heart, if your desire is, I want to get rich, that's your end. Destruction, many foolish desires, temptation, a trap, and being plunged into ruin and destruction. So it's fine. I mean, make your choice. You can keep, you can hold on and you can justify and you can try to do so biblically because I hear it all the time. I want to be rich for the glory of God. Um, I, I'm having a hard time seeing that in here. I want to use it really well. Oh, great. Let me know how that goes 20 years from now. The people that actually have it and use it well didn't want it. Or they repented of wanting it along the way somewhere. Because we can idolize these people. Oh, they're Christians. They have lots of money and they use it well. They use it to the glory of God. That's fine. You don't know their heart. But I'll tell you that if they truly do use it well before God, and I don't know, their situation, if they really are glorifying God with their riches, then they stopped wanting it a long time ago. And God just gave it to them. And it is what it is, and God will sort that all out in the end. I'm not saying every rich person is condemned to hell. I'm saying every person who maintains in their heart a desire for riches will reap the, the, the consequences articulated here through Paul to Timothy. That's your end. Destruction. The desire for riches. They want, those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation. And then he goes on to say, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You've heard that statement before. It's the root of all kinds of evil. Money's not the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. And when you desire something, what are you doing? You love it. Right? It's Valentine's Day soon, so I hear. Some of you are like, really? What is it now? Some of you, it's all you've been thinking about for the last three weeks. Would it be awkward if I got her flowers? <laughs> I, I have a really good friend. Yeah, I have a real, one of my best friends has a teenage daughter. She's 15, and this boy comes up to her. Um, sorry, this boy comes up to my, my very, very good friend whose daughter's 15 this week and says to him, um, Mr. Fill-in-the-blank, he said, um, would it be okay with you if I sang a song to your daughter at youth group this Wednesday night in front of everybody? <laughs> and you know what, J Jared, my best friend, he's like, put his hand on this boy's shoulder. He said, that'd be just fine if you did. <laughs> it's not going to go well. How many of you 15-year-old girls want your boy to serenade you in front of your youth group on a Wednesday night? <laughs> That's going to go flat. Jared's like, just fine, pal. You do your thing, man. <laughs> and then he gave him a little warning. He's like, you know, if you like her, that's not going to be a real good strategy. It's not going to go over so well. So he was able to uh, uh, pass down. A, I know. It's just so awkward when you're 15. Aren't you? So how many of you are glad you're not 15 anymore? 15 is terrible. It's awful. It's an awful time in life. But some of you, I'm guessing, hypothetically, possibly, maybe, have a desire in your heart for the affection of another individual, say, in this room or otherwise. Just, again, I don't know. Maybe. It's a desire. I desire for her to look my way and acknowledge me, that I even exist, just one time. Yeah, it's a good starting point. I desire that beyond acknowledging my existence, she actually smile at me. Wouldn't that just make my day? Maybe she does smile. I desire that she would engage me in a meaningful conversation where I would not just be the one saying awkward things that she doesn't know how to respond to. 
I was a nerd too. I totally know that that journey. So <laughs> uh, it's a miracle God ever brought me a a wife, but he did. It was a good thing. I I might later if I get a chance. I I desire when you desire something, what are you doing? You're lo- and it's you're loving. It's the it captures your attention and we get it in terms of the romantic side of things, right? And it's not even illegitimate, right? I mean, is there anything wrong with what I just laid out in terms of the pursuit of a woman or a, a man's attention? Not at all. I mean, given various boundaries and stuff that you're all aware of. Um, or I hope. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but when you desire something, it, it holds your heart. If you desire riches, you love them. They hold your heart, and they'll destroy you. Let's keep reading. Love of money, it's the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul's probably telling Timothy, referencing various people that the two of them know. There's some context there that maybe we're not aware of. I bet Timothy read that and thought, oh my gosh, yeah, that guy. Gosh, he used to really love Jesus. He doesn't anymore. Stricken with many griefs. His life's a total mess. It's all because of this love of money thing. He just didn't let it go. He held it in his heart. He justified it. Godliness is a means to gain, to financially. Hey, it's always the next step. I want money. I shouldn't want money. Hey, but if I want money and I do it God's way, then it's okay. No, it'll still destroy you. Look at verse 11. But you, but you, Timothy, you, don't be like that. Look what he says. Man of God. I love how he dresses Timothy that way. But you, man of God. Timothy, remember? You're a man of God, Timothy. You don't love money. Timothy, you're not here. The value of your life does not consist in the possessions you attain. It doesn't matter what status you achieve. Timothy, you're a man of God. You've given yourself to God. You know the pleasure of knowing God. You're familiar with Him. You know the worthlessness of that stuff. I just told you that you enter the world with nothing and you leave the world with nothing. And you're smart enough that you haven't been deceived by thinking that you can leave the world with something. That's all garbage, Timothy. You're a man of God and you know this. Don't forget it, Timothy. Do you hear Paul's heart in it? He's not just saying some cute little, hey, I hope you feel better about yourself today because I called you a man of God statement. He's saying, I know it. I know you get this stuff, Timothy. You, man of God, flee from all of this. Just run from it, Timothy. Don't have anything to do with that madness. It's crazy. Do you remember those guys? Look at their life. Do you want that to be your life? That will be your life, Timothy, if you go down that road. Don't go down that road. Flee all of this. And then he gives them the remedy. And here's here's what I love about this passage. I just told you a lot of no's, didn't I? I told you a lot of no's because Paul told Timothy a lot of no's. And I'm just reading what he said. So I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm just really glad that, the, 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 that it doesn't end there. And I'm glad that God never ends there. God never ends with, stop wanting that stuff. It's never the end of the story with God. With God isn't it? Because, I mean, how many of you at any point in your life, at any time, have ever not wanted anything? Never. I don't know if you're aware of this. You have never, nor will you ever be, in a state of non-wanting. You'll always want. You were made that way. It would be absolutely cruel and nasty of God to say to you, stop wanting. Period. It's the end of this conversation. I'm leaving. (laughs) He made you to want, didn't he? I mean, isn't that evident? It's so clear. I mean, think of your earliest child. I listen to my kids, what they want for Christmas. It's like February. Christmas is a long time. But... (laughs) It's a long calendar, guys. I want this. I, I want that. Oh, I saw this in a magazine. I want this. And of course, when they get the one out of 100 things that they list that they want at some point, they're amused with it for five minutes, and then they want something else, right? Because <laughs> what did the wanting do? Produce, you know, you satisfy the want. You know, it's Christmas morning. It's just it's a headache to me to a degree because you're like, some of this stuff is it's just there's, it's overload. You know, grandma and grandpa over here and grandma and grandpa over here. And when you come from a messed up family like mine, you got grandma and grandma and grandma and grandma. You're like, what am I going to do with all this stuff? It's madness. 
And in the moment, in that fleeting moment, there's just the joy and the surprise and the, quote, satisfaction of a desire fulfilled, right? And how long does that last? Two hours, max. You know, the, the remote control truck ran into the other one, and they both don't work, and they were cheap from Walmart for $7, so they were never destined to work anyways. So, and that, it, it just, it never goes well. And then what, do you, what, what happens immediately thereafter? I want... I want, and when, you, when you're obsessed with want in material things, in temporal things, in things that break, in things that rust, in things that get destroyed over time, what capacity do you have to want God? Very little. Very, very, very precious little. How many of you ever have just wanted God? Just in a, even in a, in a moment of time. Just, I want God. How many of you have met God in that moment at one time around there? Was it satisfying? Was it better than the new car you wanted or the iPad? It really is. Because you know what? Then you want it again. And then you get it again. And when you get it again, and you want it again, and you want it some more, and you get it some more, what happens? You get satisfied. Is he always available? Do you have to have money to afford it? Do you need some humility? <laughs> A little hunger, a little drive, a little passion, a little commitment. Absolutely, you need those things. But, but you've tasted of God, some of you. A lot of you. I hope all of you have tasted of God to a degree. And, and so when Paul tells Timothy, don't love money, he's not saying stop desiring. When he says flee from all of this, he doesn't finish there. In fact, it's the same breath. Look at what he says. Flee from all of this and pursue. Same, same sentence. Stop pursuing, but pursue. Stop loving, but love. Get the object of your love right, Timothy. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue endurance. Pursue gentleness. It's an amazing list. If you, if you ever have one moment where you're like, huh, what should I do today? What do I want? Want that stuff. Want love. Want endurance. Want gentleness. That, the gentleness always kills me. It's not really my natural way of doing anything. Oh, gentleness. I need to want gentleness. God, help me. I don't even know what that means. He doesn't. We're not Buddhists. You know, the essence of, of, of the Buddhist faith is, is, if you can call it that, the, the essence of Buddhist philosophy is, is empty yourself of desire, and then you'll be satisfied. Buddhists are idiots. So out of touch with human experience. So out of touch with themselves. E are, I mean, do you see the stupidity of that? It's never worked for anybody, for any length of time, in any segment of human history, ever. That's why I'm not a Buddhist, because it's stupid. <laughs> it's really dumb, unintelligent, unrealistic, unattainable. I know myself way too well. I'm a man of wants. I want stuff. The problem is sometimes, I get deviated from the right stuff and I take one step to destruction. The problem is if you don't get off the path that leads to destruction, you'll get to destruction. And guess what happens if you get to destruction? You don't persevere. You don't endure to the end. Because then you're just kind of stepping on the slippery slope of the edge and then a little wind, wind of trouble comes, just like Jesus said would come in Matthew 4 when he told the parable of the seeds and guess what happens? Boom, you get blown over. What happens when real trouble comes, like the day of trouble? What happens then? Are you going to stand then if your love is so consumed with everything else that you barely have the capacity to think about God? That the only time that you ever think about God is to try to work through your guilt complex because of all of the junk in your life? That's not going to work. It's not going to work at all. I, I'm a man of wants, and I know in my brief time of walking with the Lord, and by brief, I'm about halfway, half of my life now has been following Jesus. 
Thank God for that. I mean, you guys know it. Some of you might be a year into following Jesus. If you're really following Jesus, you wouldn't trade that year for any of the others. Amen? You really wouldn't. And you won't in years to come when you continue to follow him. Take hold of these. Keep, keep, keep reading. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. We say that phrase all the time. Think of the context of that phrase. Fight the good fight of faith. What is he saying to Timothy? He's saying, Timothy, fight this fight, the tension between loving material, temporal things that last for now, and, and instead of, and, 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 and in your passionate resistance against those things, pursue the things that have eternal value, Timothy. Pursue faith, pursue righteousness, perseverance, endurance, love, gentleness. Pursue that, Timothy. That's what the fight of faith is. The fight of faith is largely resisting the love of money and wholeheartedly embracing the things that have eternal value. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. How long do we have to keep fighting this fight? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think of for Timothy. Again, Timothy, likely in, because of the, the, the sense you get from all of the apostolic writing, is that there was an expectation that Jesus would probably return in their life. And of course, that didn't happen for them. But they lived like it was going to happen, and they pushed, and they persevered, and they prepared as if it was going to happen. And so he's saying, hey, if that's your end, Timothy, you persevere right until that end. You hold fast to the con this confession without blame, no spot. You go, Timothy. You're a man of God. Forget all that nonsense. Hunger after God. Satisfy yourself in God. He's the only thing that really satisfies. The rest is just fool's gold. It really is. My kids love looking for little treasures. My, my second boy, he's a, he's a total um, scavenger. Uh, he's got a hoarding complex. Everything has value to him. And it's awesome because he makes things. He's so creative. He's making stuff all the time. You know, I got him for his birthday last year. I got him a full-blown metal detector. It's awesome. So we walk around places. We find like quarters and stuff on beaches. It's so fun. It's a great little exercise, little hobby if you need something fun to do with your kids someday. But it's perfect for him because everything's a treasure. And I mean, we're constantly like throwing stuff away, hiding trash bags, running them out, putting them three bags under in the trash bin. I've, he's been known to actually tip trash bins over and rummage through them before to see what's in there. He's seven years old. It's kind of weird. But... um. But there's times when we've, we've been out and we find something, they're like, this is gold. This is, I mean, they're just so excited about it. Like it's like hidden treasure to them. You know, they've probably watched some movie where there's, it, and so they know they found it. And it'd be cruel of me to be like, yeah, buddy, it is, <laughs> right? Like to play into that. Oh, it's, I'm sure that's worth millions when it's just a chunk of tinfoil. But all of the stuff that looks so glittery to us that the world offers is just tinfoil. It's just trash. And it lures us in. And I would be doing you a disservice to say that has any value. It doesn't. None. It's worthless. It's corruptible. Let's go for what's incorruptible. Let's go for the real gold. And God offers it in this. You might think, well, that's restrictive. It's not restrictive. It's liberating. Godliness is liberating. Let's go back to that phrase just to, to put it all into con context. Godliness with contentment is what? It's great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. See, the objective here is still gain. It's still desire. God never attempts to obliterate in this teaching, Paul through Paul to Timothy, he never attempts to obliterate desire or to even shut it down. All he's saying is, hey, I made you to desire. Now I'm going to tell you what to desire, and I'm going to tell you to do with all your heart. And you're going to be so satisfied in that. God is ultimately satisfying. Apart from him, nothing is. And godliness with contentment. So if you want a title for the message, call it greedy for godliness. It's hungry. I want more godliness today. I don't know what to do. I you thought I used to want money, but I'm not pursuing money anymore. If I, I got to go to my job. I got to pay my bills. If God gives me money, so be it. 
We'll sort that out later. I'm not going for that. I'm going for God today. I have to go to work today, but I'm going for God when I go to work. I'm going to work as onto the Lord. I'm going to get that paycheck and I'm going to use it rightly and I'm going to pay my bills and take care of my responsibilities. I'm going to be a generous person and on and on. If God gives me more, that's fine. But that's not my focus. I own a business. It's incredibly difficult to apply this. I have to read this constantly. You know why I have to read this constantly? Because I'm still fighting the good fight of faith. I'm constantly fighting the urge to say, you know what? Hey, if I compromise a little bit more time with my family, I can make a little bit more money. You know why I, that's a compromise? Because there's no value in it. It's destructive. Not just in this age, but in the age to come. Because at the end of the day, I'm responsible to God for my children, for the investment of teaching them the word of God and modeling for them what a, what a father is supposed to look like. So when they hear that God is their father, that, that makes sense. And it's consistent. And I'm going to stand before God and answer those questions. And I want to do that well. And so I have to resist the urge to say, hey, I'm going to work a little harder. I'm going to do a little bit more. I'm going to stay a little bit later so I can make another buck. I have to resist that. I have to resist the urge to pursue all of the ideas that I have running through my brain all the time, many of which I think would be profitable to say, you know what? You said seek first the kingdom of God. I'm going to stop doing that. And I'm going to pray today so that I actually have a word to share with people so that they can be encouraged in their faith and persevere so that they endure to the end so they inherit the kingdom. That's more important. God, you'll take care of the money piece. Anytime money becomes the central focus, you're on, the, you're on the path to destruction. Anytime. Anytime anything of temporary satisfaction becomes the central piece of focus, you're off track. The great news is get right back on. Just repent. That's why I said, if any of you desire to be rich, just repent of it. That's the great news today. You're not stuck there. I'm not condemning you. I'm saying change. And you can Verse 17, commend those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Who rich, it's again the same thing, just God is who we love. He provides us everything for our enjoyment. And if you're worried about God taking care of you, not only does he put a roof over your head and feed you and clothe you, it says that he provides everything you need for your enjoyment. He'll take care of your, your, your entertainment budget at the same time. I mean, that's just because he's so good. He's just that good. Don't even worry about it. He'll, he'll make life enjoyable for you. Isn't that awesome? I'm not telling you you have to live in sackcloth and ashes for the rest of your life. I'm just saying love God. Forget all this stuff. Commend them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll store, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That last sentence. In this way, in the way of doing good in this, in this age, they will store up treasure for themselves for the coming age. There's a coming age. I believe the only way that any of us will ever pursue godliness and be content in the meantime is if we understand what that age is all about. To the degree that we are robbed of our understanding of what that age to come is, in really concrete terms, I think we lose the impetus that will push us to fight that good fight. And this is why I said, I just hope this provokes you to love the word of God and to spend a lot of time with him for the next five years of your life. And being single, as most of you here are, there's no better time. This is your time. Pour your heart out. And, and in fact, I want to I wanna speak to, to that particular issue as well. I really... I really believe that sometimes the, the obsession with marriage or romance or relationship can be the very thing that money is in this passage. The obsession with. I don't mean that you can't have a legitimate desire for it. I'm not saying you can't pursue it in godly, wise, tactful, hopeful ways. I think those are all good things. I think you should do that in the context of a community like this. I think it's wonderful. But the obsession with that produces uncontentedness, doesn't it? And I want to encourage us this evening to embrace contentment, to pursue godliness in light of the age to come. God will take care of you. There's an age to come that levels the playing field of injustice, 
that levels the playing field of unfulfilled desire, it makes patience fun. How many, like some of us are a little more patient than all others. None of us have fun being patient. None of us are like, hey, I would love for my passionate desire to stay unfulfilled as long as possible. That just sounds delightful. Sign me up for that. But you, you know what? In the light of the age to come, when you really get it, you're like, oh, that's big. I'm going to be rightly rewarded for my suffering in this age. Bring it on. I'll wait. I don't need all the money now. I'm going to be rightly rewarded for forsaking that in exchange for pursuing godliness. Jesus said, if you, if you pray in your closet and nobody sees you, your heavenly father sees you. And you know what the next sentence is? He'll reward you for it. How's he going to reward you? More money now? Probably not. Because that's just going to be a problem for you. How's he going to reward you? He's, he, he is holding, he's got it. When you fast, don't let everybody know you're fasting. Then your reward will be everybody knowing you're fasting. Fast in secret. Pretend you're as happy and full as you can be. And then your Father in heaven who sees what's done in secret will reward you. There's an age to come where it all, it all pans out. And when your hope is established and rooted in that age to come, then you can persevere. Then you can love godliness, pursue it with all your heart, and be content with as much or as little as he gives you in the meantime. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're just going to turn right away. Um, God's already been speaking to some of your hearts, and you'd be remiss to not acknowledge it. Um, and, and again, this, this is a, a good thing. So turn to your neighbors, um, repent, talk about it, pray for each other, um, engage the Lord about this issue. Um, Ken will be up here to pray for you. Prayer team, you can come up. Um, and so if you, if you want that, you can do it. But turn right now.